When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chastely. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Bitcoin breakthrough, the cryptocurrency hits a record $50,000. Winter warmer, the big Texan chill heats up the oil market. And breaking news, Microsoft on why big tech must pay news outlets for the content they provide. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move and another jam-packed show for you this Tuesday. Coming up, Microsoft's President Brad Smith on the future of search and social media. We're asking whether big tech should pay for the news gathering done by independent news organizations that provide much of the content that they get paid for. Vital for the future, I think, of diverse journalism. And as we've seen over the last several weeks, perhaps for our democracies and the functioning of them too. Lots to discuss there. And from Microsoft to Motors, Mike Jackson, the CEO of retailing giant AutoNation, talks digital transformation and how COVID has changed both car buying, but also perhaps the ride-sharing economy for the future too. We might even discuss the potential for Bitcoin on the balance sheets as the digital currency I mentioned briefly crossed the milestone $50,000 mark today, all part of the everything rally that seems to be taking place across global assets. Wall Street revving up to make fresh record highs at the open today too. Global stocks, in fact, now up for 12 straight sessions. That's the longest winning streak in 18 years. Japan hitting new 30-year highs as massive stimulus there helps boost economic growth. Context, though, as we always say, is key. The Nikkei still more than 20% away from record highs. But in Europe, where Stock 600, the CAC 40 and the Italian stock markets all hit the highest levels since the pandemic began. Germany hit an all-time high. It's not just about stocks. Energy prices rallying to cold snaps around the world are boosting demand and pressuring production. More on that in just a moment. But the best way, I think, to sum this up, a truly classic line today from the Bank of America fund manager survey. They said, bottom line, the only reason to be bearish is there's no reason to be bearish. Someone sound an alarm. Let's get to the drivers. Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, just to be clear, that was me saying just sound the alarm as opposed to Bank of America saying it too. But 
It is a global rally. It's putting pressure on bond yields too. What do you make of what we're seeing? Yeah, there are obviously growing concerns that maybe this market rally, this rally of everything, it's stocks, it's obviously Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, that it might be getting a little frothy. But I'm, I'm not so sure I'll use the B word that rhymes with double and trouble just yet, even though there are worries about increasing valuations. Uh, you know, BlackRock had a note out this morning where they dubbed it risk within reason. Yes, the risks are increasing. But as they pointed out, earnings growth has rebounded and is expected to recover even more in 2021. Valuations, while starting to get stretched, are not at 2000 levels uh, just yet. So I think that people are cautiously optimistic that this rally can continue, but you do have to be worried and there, there could be pullbacks along the way because you know we have come very far, very fast in the midst of a pandemic and global recession. And there could be ubbles. I'll call them, I'll skip the B if we are not talking, <laughs> not using the actual word. There could be bubbles brewing in certain parts of this market, if not in stocks, which uh, to BlackRock's point here, I think is a very important one to, um, to, to watch. Now, speaking of Bitcoin, because you mentioned it briefly passing the $50,000 level, a psychological level, you and I have talked about this already over the past couple of weeks. But I spoke to Mohammed Alirian yesterday and I asked him about other companies perhaps taking some of the cash on the balance sheet and swapping it out and adding digital assets like Bitcoin. Listen to what he had to say, Paul. I think you'll see more companies do that, and it's because they don't know how else to mitigate risk. So it's part of the distortions of the financial markets. They don't know how else to mitigate risk, and they add Bitcoin to the balance sheet as a way to mitigate risk. There will be some people here going, what? You are adding risk to your balance sheet here. Go on, what do you think? <laughs> what have you here? I mean, clearly, I don't know if this is about mitigating risk anymore. I think that having Bitcoin on your balance sheet, like Tesla, like MicroStrategy, and if we other we see other companies potentially do it, GM, for example, said they're not going to do it in a recent earnings call. It's really going to be about trying to generate excess return on cash that is really not getting much because of bond yields being so low for so long because, you know, by the way, the Federal Reserve is likely to keep interest rates near zero for the foreseeable future. But long-term bond yields are starting to creep higher. So you might have some more attractive ways to generate return through the treasury market, which is obviously safer than Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin is obviously something that some companies will find value in. But we saw just last year, I mean, Bitcoin's now at 50,000. A year ago, it plunged to just above 4,000 in the midst of the beginning of the global pandemic, not suggesting that's going to happen again, but Bitcoin is volatile with a capital V. I mean, I'm not so sure there are that many CFOs out there that want to put a significant chunk of it on their balance sheet, maybe a tiny bit like Tesla is doing, but they're not going to go all in. 
Yeah, you raised so many great points here. It's capital preservation. And that was the risk that I think Mohammed was talking about. If you've got cash sitting on your balance sheet and it earns no return versus um, the risk, perhaps, that you have a really uh, volatile and exciting period, particularly if you have to report quarterly. The ups and downs of that could be um, eye-watering. Paula Monica, thank you so much. We will continue to discuss this. I know we will. All right, let's move on. The Everything Rally includes the energy market. Oil prices rising once again today amid a powerful winter storm that's brought extreme cold conditions to much of the southern United States. Ed Lavandera is in Dallas with the latest. Freezing temperatures and power outages are pummeling areas from Texas through the Plain States. More than a third of the country reached temperatures below zero on Monday. Texas is receiving the brunt of the storm with millions across the state left with no power and no heat. We all see the current situation. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The next few days are going to be very tough. There's a high chance the power will be out for, for these folks until the weather gets better, which will not be for a couple of days. The city of Abilene that has a population of more than 100,000 residents was forced to shut off water last night due to power outages. The lacking infrastructure for these conditions is a major concern for hard hit areas with some families freezing in their homes. It's like a walk-in freezer. It's like uh, 34 to 36 degrees, I would say. It depends on which room you're in. 40 degrees is at the lowest end to uh, 55 at the highest. In Harris County, power outages nearly spoiled more than 8,000 coronavirus vaccine doses. Moderna advised the county that 3,000 of those doses could go back into storage, and the rest were distributed throughout the county. Historic lows in Dallas, Oklahoma City, and in Kansas City, the coldest since 1989. The wind chill factor reaching temperatures as cold as minus 32 degrees. In Tennessee, authorities reported two fatalities from the storm on Monday. In Kentucky, the governor is warning that another storm is on its way. He tells residents not to run your gas ovens to generate heat and be careful using generators and camp stoves. Again, I can't stress the dangers of carbon monoxide poisoning, which is absolutely avoidable. Those are casualties we don't want to see. We did not make it through almost a year of a pandemic to lose people to a snow or an ice storm. And we wish everybody safe and well who's struggling with this. The result, of course, in the energy markets, WTI hitting the highest level in a year. John Defteris joins us now. John, great to have you with us. It's just a further tailwind to energy prices now that have been rising for many months. Yes, I like the way you put that, Julia, the the tailwind here, because uh, this uh, storm is hitting Texas particularly hard and why it's wreaking havoc on the energy market. So let's break it down into specifics, right? There's West Texas where uh, uh, Midland, Odessa is. That's the heart of the Permian Basin. That represents uh, over a third of daily output at the peak in 2020. We're talking about 4 million barrels a day, and that's grinding to a halt. Then you go to the east to Port Arthur, uh, where the large refineries are for petrochemicals. The largest is owned by Saudi Arabia. It's called Motiva. It's been shuttered as a result, and it's not alone. And then you head south into the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico there to the Sabine Pass. There's these brand new LNG terminals that export the uh, shale gas all around the world that's been compressed. They are having problems as well. But I do see this, as you're suggesting, the tailwind or the fourth leg is what I'm calling it because there's other factors driving this market right now. 
Number one is all the stimulus money. So if Joe Biden gets his package through, we're looking at $5 trillion over a year. That's a lot of cash chasing assets right now. The vaccines are rolling out, Julia. That's a positive. It's got a long ways to go, but it's starting to restore confidence in the economy. And the last thing we can't forget, and this is something very familiar to those here in the Middle East, OPEC Plus. Uh, you know, we had prices go negative uh, for 24 hours uh, back on April 20th of last year. But in May, all the way till today, OPEC's been cutting, not at 10 million barrels a day, but they're still active in the market, which raises the question here, do they come back in and start to to loosen up. But I say the snowstorm is like a blanket, another layer to a very complex market. But you can see the drivers. We've had a pretty strong rally ever since Election Day in the United States. A snow blanket, John, to be specific. I mean, you've walked us through a lot of the fundamental drivers of the market (laughs) now. What about to circle back to what I was just talking about with with Paul, Wall Street's role in the rally that we're seeing? Well, you know what? There was a record $58 billion that came off the sidelines and was active primarily in equities. Uh, But we see the hedge funds moving in because of the concerns we've talked about over the last week because of inflation. So what do you chase? You chase some of the hotter commodities. And the hottest game right now in town is oil. Uh, So $58 billion, you've got to at least think as a fifth of that going into the commodity market right now. Uh, It makes uh, perfect sense. Number two, I talked about OPEC Plus. You know, it's going to be a political decision that's going to be coming up pretty soon here, Julie, because there were some divisions at the last meeting. It was Saudi Arabia that wanted to cut, added another million barrels a day. Uh, If prices are edging closer and closer to $70 a barrel at the international benchmark, can Saudi Arabia really hold that position? Because there was four or five within that camp of OPEC Plus that said, look, we need to start adding oil back onto the market. That next meeting is March 4th. But it's the complexity of the financial trade right now which is making it difficult for OPEC Plus, but also for consumers, which are paying a much higher price for heating oil and the prices at the pump as well. Yeah, they need a crystal ball. Quite frankly, we crystal ball and we don't have it. John Tifteris, thank you so much for yeah. that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Some welcome news. New coronavirus cases continue to fall sharply in the United States and the United Kingdom. In the U.S., the seven-day average is down 66 percent from its peak in January. Health experts remain concerned, though, about the spread of new, more contagious variants. To Hong Kong now, who's relaxing social distancing restrictions after it reported its lowest daily number of new cases since last November. From Thursday, new health regulations will allow indoor dining in restaurants with up to four people at a table. Will Ripley is in Hong Kong with all the details. Well, it doesn't matter where in the world it is. I'm always delighted to hear a loosening of restrictions. Tell me what some of these restrictions are and what they're going to mean in terms of just getting back to life. Oh, Julia, I can't tell you how much this means. I arrived here in Hong Kong from the United States about a month ago. I was in a three-week mandatory quarantine in a hotel where you couldn't leave the room. I had an electronic wristband to make sure I didn't leave. Then I was able to get outside. But, you know, the gyms are closed, the movie theaters, the arcades, uh, outdoor tennis courts, uh, amusement parks, ice skating rinks. It's all been closed ever since December 10th when the Hong Kong government uh, saw a spike in cases and decided to shut much of the city down. Small businesses have been in an uproar. A lot of them say they're just barely holding on. So at least for restaurants, now they'll be able to 
uh, you know, continue serving dinner again because they've been having to basically shut down at six o'clock and limit seating to two people for table. I went to brunch the other day. If you have more than two people in your group, there's a big plastic divider in between you and, and the person that you're sitting next to, which isn't so conducive for conversation. So at least now things are starting to feel a bit more normal with the caveat the Hong Kong government says that this is only because case numbers have been dropping. They're down to about single digits per day. They want to get that number down to zero cases per day. So what they've been doing are these kind of ambush style lockdowns that similar to the ones that we've actually seen in mainland China, Julia. So people who live in a particular neighborhood or even a particular apartment building could all of a sudden learn that the police and health officials have surrounded their building and nobody gets to leave until everybody is tested. They've done that a few different times uh, here in Hong Kong, especially over on the Kowloon side when cases were spiking there. And they're going to continue to potentially do that in the near future. But for most people, uh, they're looking forward to a resumption of normal life with a few exceptions. Schools, they're still doing virtual learning for now. We're being told that schools will eventually start to allow one-sixth of students in the classrooms based on their educational needs, which is certainly going to be welcome news for the parents here in Hong Kong, many of whom are living in very teeny tiny flats, having to figure out ways to watch their kids while their kids are doing virtual learning at home. Yeah, a huge relief all round. Well, and let's hope we can keep the cases down there. Will Ripley, great to have you with us yeah. in Hong Kong there. All right, still to come here on First Move. No showroom, no problem. America's biggest car dealer sees a record quarter despite COVID-19 shutdowns. We're joined by the CEO of AutoNation next and make them pay. Australia wants tech giants to shell out for news. Microsoft's president agrees. He joins us later to discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks look set to begin the holiday-shortened trading week at, yes, you guessed it, fresh record highs. Commodities, Bitcoin, all rallying with stocks, even as U.S. bond yields break through some pretty key levels, raising fears, as we've discussed already on the show over the last couple of weeks, higher borrowing costs. The 10-year U.S. Treasury currently at an 11-month high of one and a quarter percent on hopes that new stimulus will trigger stronger growth. Reopening stocks also revving up. IMAX shares set to soar on news of record ticket sales in China this Lunar New Year holiday. Southwest also rallying pre-market too. They say ticket sales are on the rise this month too, of course, Southwest Airlines. All right, so much for the sharing economy. The pandemic is driving personal mobility right now too. AutoNation, the biggest car dealer network in the United States, has just reported all-time record results in the fourth quarter, leaving sales and profit forecasts for dust. And it's fueled by digital earnings in the autumn. Over half the sales originated online as America takes hands-off approach to buying cars. Mike Jackson is executive chairman and CEO of AutoNation and joins us now. Mike, fantastic to have you on the show. <laughs> Wowzers, I have to say, with regards to the results, you had your best quarter last quarter ever. You've topped it this quarter. And it's the digital sales that I find remarkable. I know it was a push, but it's still remarkable. Well, thank you. It, it, it is uh, absolutely the best ever. So that's to be enjoyed and celebrated. And, and, and let me tell you what the factors are. First, um, with the pandemic, there's been a, a, a major shift that people want more space in their home. They're fixing up their home and they want personal mobility, not shared mobility. 
So there's been a reallocation of priorities in the American household budget towards the home and personal transportation. You combine that with the fact that the cost of money is very low and we finance most of our products uh, for our customers and gasoline is available and affordable. There's a lot of fiscal stimulus both here and coming and the environment that has created tremendous demand for personal mobility. Then you, you, AutoNation itself is outperforming in that positive environment. We have a great brand. We have a tremendous uh, customer experience with one price on pre-owned. And we have tremendous digital capabilities, as you just uh, pointed out. And if I look at the fourth quarter, where pre-owned business was generally flat, uh, we increased, uh, for the industry, we increased revenue by uh, 12%. Mm. Um, and digital allows us to do all this more cost effectively. Hence, you have an over 90 percent increase in earnings per share. You know, it's it's fantastic, Mike. And for all the reasons that you pointed out, it's a perfect moment. The stars have aligned. Cheap financing, oil prices relatively low, uh, the gig economy crushed by COVID. So I guess a skeptic would look at this and say, you're making hay while the sun shines. But is it sustainable when all of these things come back, particularly the sharing economy? Do you think that comes back? So, um Listen, I'm all about building a company and um, building a brand. That's what I've done my entire career because, to your point, Julia, uh, a brand gives you uh, great uh, runway uh, and sustainability. Mm. And every brand must have a great customer experience, and and we've done that. And and customers want to do business digitally. So I feel very good about that. And the uh, the irony, though, at the moment is – we have four, far more demand than supply. The manufacturing process uh, for new vehicles is very disrupted, both by the pandemic and also by the shortages of microchips. Because as consumers and Americans are spending more time at home, the demand for consumer electronics is through the roof. And you're competing for microchips be- between those industries. And there's a shortage for the automobile manufacturers that you can't produce without these microchips. So we have far more demand than supply, and I expect that situation uh, to continue well into this year. Is that going to create some upward pricing pressure, Mike, do you think? Pricing pressure? Well, mm. actually, at the moment, uh, the consumers in a, is, we're all in a good position. So most consumers have a trade-in, and the trade-in is worth more than ever, and we give them value for that. And most consumers finance, so the cost of money is very low. So while price points are higher because of the demand-supply situation, in total, it's an attractive proposal for the consumer, uh, and uh, they are buying. What proportion are electric vehicles Mike, very briefly, of what you're seeing. We've obviously been through a period where we're that much more sensitive, I think, about the impact on the environment of the lifestyles that we were living and that we had. What are you seeing in terms of demand for EV? So, there's, there's, Julia, there's no, you're spot on. There's no question that we've passed an inflection point on electrification and why it may be less than 2% pure electric sales in the U.S. last year. It's going to increase every year uh, going forward. And here's what the consumers are doing. Uh, They're buying a vehicle. They prefer around 250 miles of range 
but they're using the vehicle primarily uh, to go to work, run errands, whatever, locally. And then when they get home at the end of the day, they plug it in. They go home, they pull it in their parking spot, they plug it in, and they wake up every morning fully charged and they never have to go to a gas station again. And they love that. <laughs> now, uh, most of our electric customers also have another vehicle. They may have a big Suburban or Cadillac Escalade, whatever. And they use that for family trips where they use the existing infrastructure uh, of gasoline stations for a longer trip. So I think the, the transition, the, the inflection point to electrification is here. We have them coming from all our manufacturers. If you go to our website, you'll see a big button for electrification that shows you everything that AutoNation offers around electrification. And this um, migration to electric is underway. But let me be clear. Let's say by 2030, maybe 20% of what we sell will be mm. all electric. Uh, but the vehicles on the road of America will only be 5%, 6% electric by 2030. Because this is not like going from the flip phone to the smartphone where you take your cheap flip, flip phone and throw it away. Um, the internal combustion vehicles that are on the road of America today, 265, 270 million, uh, have a lifespan of 20, 25 years. And people That's are not going to point. discard them or throw them away. They're going to don't keep disregard. them. Going to, so this transition to an electric fleet will take decades, but it's here. It's beginning. I'm excited. An inflection about it. point, but it's going to take time very quickly, Mike, because I have about a minute left. You've always <laughs> had some choice words for uh, Tesla and their business model, the subsidies that they get in terms of um, clean energy. What do you make of the Bitcoin on the balance sheet uh, idea? And is it something perhaps you would consider allowing customers to pay in Bitcoin one day? All right. So, listen, I could be wrong about Bitcoin or I'll be frank. I really don't know. I really don't understand it. Um, I served on the Federal Reserve here in the United States for nine years, ending up as chairman of the Atlanta Fed. Uh, so it's not like I haven't thought about these issues. And it may be that I'm myopic. I don't know. But uh, AutoNation is not accepting uh, Bitcoin. We loved uh, Uncle Sam and the U.S. Green Bank uh, Reserve <laughs> Currency. Just... Uh, that's, <laughs> I sleep bring, good Bring your dollars, just, uh, my friends, and you can uh, buy a car. That's the message. <laughs> just, give me, just give me the good old US dollar. I'm fine. <laughs> I'll leave Bitcoin to others. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Great to chat. And congratulations right. again on the earnings, Mike. Good to see you. The CEO of Autonation, right. likewise, sir. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running after the long holiday weekend. And we've got a strong start across the board with all the U.S. majors at fresh record highs and what many are calling the everything rally, as we've discussed already on the show. Investors betting big on the reflation trade, leaving remaining bears well and truly in the dust. Tech leading the charge this morning. The Nasdaq currently up more than 10 percent year to date, too. Elsewhere, it's remember, it's not just about stocks. Bitcoin crossed the 50,000 mark, $50,000 mark earlier today. MicroStrategy CEO, do you remember Michael Saylor, who was on the show last week? He announced today that the company will sell $600 million worth of convertible debt in order to buy even more Bitcoin. It already owns more than 70,000 Bitcoin. All right, let's move on. Australia plans to make Google and Facebook pay for news. 
The company currently controls 81% of every digital advertising dollar spent in the country and an estimated 75% of Australians get their news from social media. Two very important facts. Now, backing the proposal is another tech giant. Microsoft says paying for your news is not just important for journalism, but key to healthy democracies. Joining us now, Brad Smith, president of Microsoft. Brad, it's always great to have you on the show. And I have to say prescient as always on this because it's something you were talking about at the back end of what 2019 saying journalism, the role of social media was going to be so crucial for democracies going forward. Just explain your stance on this. Sure. Well, absolutely. And and thanks, Julia. It's always good to talk. And as you point out, we've been focused the last couple of years on a couple of key facts. You know, one is you know, social media has not necessarily been kind to independent journalism. We've seen you know, the, the financial base of independent journalism erode as people have gone online, as advertising has moved online. And I think you hit the nail on the head. You cannot have a healthy democracy without healthy journalism. And we all depend on having a healthy democracy. That means we all depend on having healthy journalism. And so we saw this Australian proposal as an opportunity to step in and stand up for what we think is not just good business for Microsoft, but really a good cause for Australia and the world. I mean, there are two things here, Brad, when you're looking and we keep it specific to the Australia situation. There is people just simply going online and searching for news. And then there's where these social media platforms actually get the news from. And to your point, they effectively borrow the news from local news outlets. They attract all the advertising money, these big platforms, and it leaves the smaller guys out in the cold. Talk to me about And the that's why that- we've seen... So I was going to say, that's why we've seen sort of the spread of this notion of of news deserts, where local communities are are literally losing their local newspaper. So we have to find some way, I think, to, to build a better model to support them. And that's what Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has done. Uh, you know, his legislation would require that services like Google and Facebook or Microsoft with Bing, if we can grow it to a certain size, you know, would compensate independent journalists, newspapers, for the benefits derived from having their news content on these sites. And it would back this with an arbitration mechanism. So it struck us as actually a big step in the right direction. I mean, that was actually one of the things I loved about your blog when I when I read it. It was you putting your hands on saying, hey, we, we get it. We would benefit from this because we have our own search function that gets squished, quite frankly, in Australia. So allowing greater competition, different search function sources, but also providing payment to some of those that provide the content on these websites benefits everybody, surely, and society, particularly when we look at what we've been through over the last few weeks. If we look at the United States example and how prolific social media is and and fake news on social media, quite frankly. Well, I do think the events in the United States have caused us all to just reflect on just the, the need to address disinformation on social media. I think that's one side of this issue. But then having a healthy, independent journalistic base on the other. I think these two need to go together. And, you know, frankly, what really got our attention was when Google 
said to Australia that if the law was passed, they would leave. They'd just pull their service out of the country. And so Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella and I called Prime Minister Morrison and said, look, even if Google wants to leave, we will stay, we will invest, we will need to grow our market share so we have revenue to share with publishers. Um, But we're comfortable running a search business as we have with Bing in a way that shares proceeds, revenue with publishers. We just need to grow it in a country like Australia so we have more revenue. You mentioned Google, so we'll talk about that first, and then we'll talk about the role that you already play in compensating uh, new sources at Microsoft. Brad, it was fascinating the decision that Google made to say, hey, we're, we're actually that powerful, we'll pull out. If you don't do what we want or you do something like this, we'll leave. They've reconsidered, it seems. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating. We announced our public support for the Australian law and said that we would stay. And 24 hours later, Google was on the phone with the prime minister. They reversed course. They said they would stay. And I think the good news is they've been moving fast and furiously to now do deals with Australian publishers. They recognize that the passage of this law is imminent. And I think they've rightly concluded that if they can get deals done and really satisfy the publishers before the law is enacted, then they're less likely to feel the the law's bite once it's approved. Part of the argument here is that the publishers of news will charge too much money. It will suppress the margins. I mean, it's tough when you look at the billions of dollars of advertising revenue. How do you attribute what proportion to the content that's been provided by journalists elsewhere in the world? So we can question that. But Brad, I know... One, you're already already doing this. You crossed the $1 billion of revenue share with 4,500 media brands in 180 countries as of October 7th, 2020. So that's the first thing. You already have a sense of this. But two, and I think this is also the important part, you're, you're willing to see collective wage bargaining among these smaller institutions just to give them a stronger voice. And I do think that is one of the important innovations in the Australian proposal. You know, it is a classic case of a remarkably imbalanced negotiating position. On one side of the table, you have a company like Google. It's large. It has this high market share. It has high profit margins. And on the other side of the table, you have even in Australia itself more than 100 small news organizations. They all operate on very low margins. That's a hard negotiation if you're a small publisher. So by giving the publishers the ability to bargain collectively, the government is creating one of the ingredients that I think is actually indispensable to just leading to a fair negotiation process. Yeah. Brad, obviously the Australian market news consumers are different from other nations in the world but there are aspects of this that i can see surely would work here in the united states would work in other countries around the world other nations should be looking at this and going there's a roadmap here i think other nations are following what's happening in australia very closely we've been hearing from publishers and government officials literally around the world since we endorsed the australian proposal Other governments have tried, and they haven't succeeded to a remarkable degree. And I think that's why some of the innovations in the Australian proposal are so interesting. We all depend on a healthy 
journalistic base. In every democracy, there's 76 democratic countries in the world. I think that means there's 76 nations in the world that have an interest in thinking about something like this. Right, very quickly, to the skeptics that are saying, you know, Microsoft is one of the best examples of those that would perhaps understand unfair competition and scale and size, given what the company's been through in the past. What's your response to that today? Well, in a way, we were the first graduate of the school of hard knocks. Uh, you know, it was 25 years ago now that you know, we were thrust into this middle of an antitrust controversy. It took us a long time to work our way through it. Um, you know, we definitely emerged, I think, you know, older and wiser. Uh, and I think some of the lessons that we learned you know, do call on us to reflect on you know, what the problems are that need to be solved, how a company can do more to step forward to help solve them. Uh, I think big companies, when they're in these kinds of controversies, you know, typically have a hard time understanding why they're there. They're reluctant to make changes that they regard as painful. Uh, but I look at Microsoft's own experience and I say, you know, change is not only possible, I actually think it puts us, the industry, markets, governments around the world in a better place. Yeah, our societies and our democracies depend on it, I think, Brad. Um, very quickly, while I've got you, it would be highly remiss of me to have the president of Microsoft on the show and not ask him his views of uh, Bitcoin on the balance sheet in light of what um, Tesla has decided to do. And I know you were listening in to my previous conversation as well with the AutoNation CEO. So is this having, is this having an impact on your board? Are you potentially discussing crypto diversification, Brad, she says with a smile. Uh, well, I haven't heard any uh, new conversation about Bitcoin. Uh, but l let me just say, if we change our investment policy on Bitcoin, Julia, you'll be the first, well, at least the second oh. to know. So <laughs> you being that. the first. <laughs> Thank you. But I'll, I'll let you know right away. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> An exclusive Happy on first move. Thank you, Brad. Always Thank a pleasure. Thank you. Brad Smith, president of Microsoft there. Thank you. All right. We seem to hear more promising news about COVID-19 vaccines almost every day. But despite all the progress, experts say it could take years to meet demand around the world. We'll explain why. Welcome back to the show. A coronavirus vaccine manufactured by Novavax taking another key step towards winning U.S. government approval. The biotech company says it expects to announce this week that its vaccine trial has reached full enrollment. That would be in record time. The trial will include 30,000 adults across the United States and Mexico. Novavax says it's on track to apply for emergency use authorization in the United States by the summer. There are several COVID-19 vaccines already on the market, of course, and many more in the pipeline. But making enough doses for the entire world could take years. CNN's Anna Stewart explains why. This lab is making lipid nanoparticles. The genetic code in mRNA vaccines are transported into human cells via these little fatty bubbles. Around a thousandth of the width of a single human hair, they're incredibly small, critical to the COVID-19 vaccine rollout, and there aren't nearly enough. Acuitous Therapeutics is one of the biotech firms making the lipid component in the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. 
They were also supporting CureVac and Imperial College London, who have vaccine candidates in the pipeline. But they can't make enough by themselves. We don't try and do it all ourselves. We try to enable others around the globe um, to be able to contribute to this to this effort. Whenever we reach out to, to other companies uh, to ask them whether they could support uh, manufacturing of the lipid components, for example, as soon as they hear it's to support a COVID-19 vaccine, you know, they're completely engaged. Powerful alliances are being forged in the private sector. There are calls, though, for more cooperation at government level. Now we are facing a situation where overall capacity, whether it's for um, the first steps of manufacturing or it is for fill and finish, they are scarce. And as a result, we need public agencies, so governments nationally or regionally, they have to come together and ask the question, if I have scarce capacity for something, how do I ensure that it remains coordinated between multiple vaccine manufacturers? Greenlight Biosciences, a biotech firm in Boston, has delayed the development of their mRNA vaccine candidate so they can tailor it for the newer variants of coronavirus. It'll also allow them more time to increase capacity. Greenlight has been looking for multiple facilities. We are in conversations with multiple regional partners in South Asia, Southeast Asia, Africa, North America, South America, to implement those facilities. Those facilities will take roughly six to nine months to construct. And then, you know, they need to be validated by local regulatory authorities, which adds, you know, anywhere between a month and three months or whatever. But once each one of those facilities is up and running, they will be able to, to produce billions of doses of COVID-19 vaccine locally. If you see other vaccine makers fail to make a vaccine, fall out of the vaccine race, are you looking to buy up their facilities as well to ensure that you can make as much as possible? We're looking for a GMP facility. We're looking for local partners. Um, you know, so that's my uh, my wanted ad on CNN is can can we please, if you have spare capacity uh, or you want to participate in getting local uh, local production up and running, please give us a call. Vaccine factories and lipid nanoparticles are just some of the bottlenecks to vaccinating the world. There will be more. Not least as new variants of coronavirus require modifying vaccines and perhaps for years to come. Anna Stewart, CNN, London. All right, coming up, making the case for massive new stimulus. President Biden heads to the heartland to pitch his bold new spending plan at a special CNN town hall. All the details just ahead. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. President Joe Biden getting set to pitch his almost $2 trillion emergency aid plan to Americans later today during the special CNN town hall. The pace of COVID vaccinations and school reopenings will also be key topics. That event taking place in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And Jeff Zeleny joins us from there now. Jeff, great to have you with us. I think the audience is approving of a $2 trillion or near $2 trillion stimulus. There's no selling needed there. The key, I think, for people as well is to hear, when are we going to get vaccines? When can we get back to life, quite frankly? And are we over the worst? What's he going to say? 
Well, Julia, that certainly is the question that uh, President Biden is likely to entertain when he'll be speaking really face to face for the first time with voters since taking office. And this comes at the end of his first month as president. But it really is the beginning of the rest of the push of this. I mean, the first a few weeks of this administration you know, have been uh, so, um, you know, uh, competing basically with the impeachment trial of former the former president. But now that that is out of the way, he is making his case for this economic relief bill uh, and largely going to go alone with it with Democrats in the Congress. But average Americans, real people want to know when they'll get their vaccines, when their schools are opening, and will they get some economic relief? And really, there's about a month left of that you know, the economic uh, stimulus that people have been receiving. So, you know, time is of the essence here. But the vaccination rollout, yes, it has improved. There have been more vaccines. Uh, the administration has has pledged and promised 300 million Americans will be vaccinated by the end of July. But in the short term, uh, there is still a big supply issue. There's some confusion over how it's being distributed by the state and federal government. So I think President Biden will take many of those questions on those topics here tonight. I mean, you pointed it out that the handover was, um, let's call it challenging. We've had the distraction of, of impeachment. <laughs> the challenges. Yes, I know I'm being diplomatic. That's uh, that's my role here. Um, Indeed. Jeff, how has his popularity held up? And what do you make of what we're seeing in terms of a sea change? He talked about unity, uniting the government. Is he managing at this stage with all those distractions to begin that process in your mind? Julia, that is the big challenge, uniting the country, uniting the government. Uh, the Biden White House is very well aware of the fact that there are still deep divisions. One of the ways they believe they can try and get beyond that is through success, is by having a successful vaccination rollout plan, is by having a successful economic uh, relief bill, and whether Republicans vote on it or not. The uh, surveys and polls show that the vast majority of Americans do actually support this relief. At the end of the Trump administration, just at the end of last year, there was a plan to send $2,000 to all Americans. Now, this, uh, you know, much smaller checks in this, about 1400 or so, but added with that 600 from last year, that would be a $2,000. Now, it's going to be targeted more toward the people who need it most. But to Julia, when I've been talking to voters here, including voters who supported President Trump, Wisconsin was one of the closest battlegrounds in the country. Even Trump supporters are saying, look, we want President Biden to be successful. We want him to be successful in the short term on fighting COVID because that will get the economy back on track and that will get things moving again. So I sense, first and foremost, a sense of patience. People are exhaling a little bit, if you will, that President Trump and all that he brought is not front and center. But now the challenges are President Biden's. He owns them. He knows that. Now he has to deliver. Yeah. Get us back to life, please, sir. Jeff Zeleny in Milwaukee there. Thank you. Always great to have you on the show. And President Biden's town hall, moderated by Anderson Cooper, begins at 9 p.m. Eastern time, which is, of course, Wednesday morning in Europe and Asia. We'll also replay the events at times that might be more convenient for you right here on CNN. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages over the next few hours. Search for at CNN. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.